0: All right, Uh, welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krause, and today I'm really excited to host the first part of a two-parter that we're doing all about... Uh, an outreach project that the center for sustainable nanotechnology has done with a group called lifeology and we're going to talk a lot more about what that is and why we did it but first i'd like to have our our interviewers introduce themselves Um, we have three graduate students from the csn who worked who basically did this entire project and uh, and also have done the podcast interviews so um, who wants to go first jaya how about you go first
1: Hi, I'm Jaya Borgata. I'm a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, and I study how nanoparticles interact with plant systems for sustainable
0: agriculture. Great, and um, Stephanie, you want to go next?
2: Hi, I'm Steph Mitchell. I am a graduate student at the University of Minnesota, and I study the impact of nanomaterials on microbes.
3: And, oh yeah. Um, And I'm Paige Kinsley. Um, I am also a student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm working on developing tools to track nanomaterials in uh, biological systems.
0: Fantastic. So, Steph, can you tell us a little bit about just what lifeology is? What does it look like when somebody accesses one of these courses?
2: Yeah, so I think we all got first excited about lifeology when we had met Paige Giroux at a conference called Science Talks. And yeah, what you do is you go to the website, and there's a bunch of different courses, and each course has maybe a sentence with an image next to it, and you can flip through them like flashcards. But I think what really struck me about it is that it didn't feel like flashcards with helpful pictures next to the side. It felt like you were going through a story and then also gaining so much knowledge at the same time. So I think that's what initially got us so excited to be able to work with Lifeology, that these cards were super informative and beautiful.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with Steph. I thought the sort of the accessibility of the like concepts and stories that were being told in each of these courses was like really impressive and just like so much more enhanced by the beautiful art that went along with it. And I think Lifeology, one of the things that they do is like they pair scientists and artists, right? And as a scientist, like I don't, I wouldn't necessarily know how to start if I wanted my science as art, but Lifeology has the, like the platform of Lifeology has enough people engage with it, both scientists and artists that you have as a, as a scientist, like there are so many people that you could potentially interact with um, to sort of create something that's more than just your research and more than just like the words on the page, which is really, really cool.
1: I also think that the artwork of the Lifeology course, it reaches you in a different way. So it's able to inspire more of an emotional connection in the viewer than you would be able to just by having a series of flashcards. And the way that they write in Lifeology is really accessible to anyone who encounters the course. And that really helps facilitate understanding and then the science communication of concepts that can be simple or really really complicated.
2: Yeah, so the lithology courses are also only 20 to 30 slides. So I think that helped every course be a really engaging and short story where there there wasn't too much fluff or external information. It really it really got to the main points of what the authors and artists were trying to say quickly. So I think it was also a nice way to to quickly give valuable information as well.
0: Yeah, and so all of you having emphasized how cool the art uh, aspect of it was, I'll say that's a nice teaser for our next episode where you interviewed the artist, Elfie Chang. And in this first episode, you're, you're interviewing Paige Giroux, as you mentioned. And can you talk a little bit about what it was like working with her? And like, how was this process different from other outreach projects? Because all of you have been very active in outreach in the past. So so what made this different?
1: So I think one of the things that was nice to do in working with Paige Duro is she's a scientist. She has her PhD in biomedical engineering. And so she has this really good understanding of how the science works. She also worked on nanotechnology, which I think helped her understand some of the challenges that we face in communicating about nanotechnology. But she also is a really great writer. And she thinks a lot about how to construct a course so that you don't lose people, which is a teaser for something she'll be talking about in this podcast. So like her thoughtfulness about how to tell a story and construct a story really helped us edit and revise the way that we were thinking about communicating our science to people. And it was really helpful to have a perspective outside of our own, because when you're working on something for so long, you can kind of lose sight of the big picture. And she really provided that big picture grounding.
0: Is there any other... Oh, one other thing I was going to ask was, what was it like? I know as the three of you were working on the script, a lot of the challenge was in really being super concise. What was that experience like? Were there any particular concepts that you just stumped you or could talk a little bit about that process of writing?
3: Yeah. So each card, there's essentially like a character limit on each card within it. So one course is usually something like 20 to 30 different cards to tell the story. And each card has, I think the limit is something like 180 characters, right? So essentially it's like you're forced to tell the story in like a Twitter thread in a way, but with prettier art. And I think we found that like there are some concepts that have a lot of detail that we had to recognize wasn't essential to communicate it, right? Um, I think something that is forever a challenge of scientists is we want to both be accurate and precise in how we describe things. And generally that means going into like, as much detail as possible in order to not be incorrect or misleading or something like that. But I think something that we realized and recognized as we were writing the course was that people to like understand the concept don't need all of that, right? They don't need all of those specific details in order to understand the core concept. And so I think by writing this and by being forced to be so, so succinct, and ensure that like, we weren't being redundant either, right? You don't want to waste space. We had to think about what, what is the core of this concept? What is the important thing? What is the most essential boiled down idea here um, that is needed in order to like, have people understand what's going on? And I think we probably spent the most time working on that. Like we, we had the story, we had an idea of sort of where it was going to go, But the the tuning of the concepts, I think, is where we spent a lot of our time um, once we had sort of written things
0: out. Do you think that having done that exercise, is that going to play out for you beyond having worked on this course at all? I think
2: definitely. I think the thing that originally really attracted to me about lifeology was the ability to talk about our science in a new way. So I think, yeah, we're all familiar with doing in-person outreach and how... You kind of want to be flashy maybe with your demo, um, but I think working on lifeology made it really clear that when we are communicating our science in not an in-person platform, the thing that's like parallel to being flashy in person is getting to your point really quickly in text. And of course we got to be flashy, well we didn't get to, but Elfie was able to create some really captivating images but you don't want to bury the lead in what's so important about what you're doing. So I think what's great about Lifeology is we were able, on our first slide, we were able to ask some really important questions that would immediately catch the audience's eye and then be able to get them to invest in this problem and the answer to the problem, which is why we need to be responsible with products that contain
0: nanomaterials. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, any last thoughts before we launch into the interview itself cool well without further ado um, here is Stephanie Mitchell and Jaya Borgata interviewing Paige Giroux
2: okay today we are joined with Paige Giroux so Paige will you introduce yourself
0: yes
4: um My name is Paige. I am the VP of Science Communication at Lifomic. It's a health software company where we produce health software for um, a wide range of applications, but including for health and science education. So I do anything and everything science communication here at Lifeomic, and we might talk a little bit about my background, but broadly I'm a scientist turned science communicator.
2: Very cool. So can you tell us a little about how you initially got interested in science even before... Um, having your roles at omic and Lifeology.
4: Yes. So, um, long-time scientist. It started when I was really young. I think, you know, it was always a battle between whether I wanted to become a writer or a scientist when I was young. Of course, when I was really young, I wanted to be, you know, a doctor like many kids do. But as I grew up, um, I was always really, really interested in biology as well as other aspects of science. And at some point I got interested in biological engineering because I had this idea that I might be a person to design implants, like heart implants that would be put into people. And so going into college, I ended up going into biological engineering as kind of, you know, at first thinking I might go into medicine, but kind of got deeper and deeper into engineering itself and specifically like dealing with the micro scale like actually studying nanoparticles and genetic uh, materials on on top of nanoparticles so my interest in science started with I'd say like biology and components within inside the body but I started to focus you know more and more and more on the micro scale which I think we'll talk about today actually
2: (laughs) yeah I think it's interesting that you mentioned you first thought you were going to be a doctor, because I think a lot of us, when we realize we like science or have um, skills thinking about scientific concepts, a lot of us are told to become medical professionals or just like shift right into that field. And then I think we all then discover that there's so many other options and career options that you can do with scientific passion.
4: Biology or engineering.
1: Did you have an aha moment? that brought you into science and engineering? Like, was there a specific concept that really struck you? Um, one of the things, when we Google your name, one of the top four results is nano cages. What does that mean for you?
4: Yeah, so I don't really remember the time. I, I do remember some like very striking examples that like made me wanted to go into biological engineering. I remember, but I was already at an engineering camp when I was in high school. And I don't know what got me there. I must have already been interested in engineering. But I, when I went to this camp, um, we had a young lady come speak to us. She was already maybe a graduate student. And she was told us this story about how she helped design heart implants or like devices that she would be in the room with the surgeon or with the doctor, like during surgeries to kind of direct the technical aspects of implanting these devices. And I just remember she was sounded like so excited and passionate about what she was doing after she gave this talk. I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I have to do. I have to go into biological engineering. So there's examples like that. And you know, my parents, probably my dad, got me interested in engineering in the first place as kind of a, a way to differentiate myself if I did want to go to medical school. He w- he had gone to medical school, so I'm sure, you know, all growing up, there was science always there. But when I went to, to LSU for college, but I also went for athletics, so I was, you know, a college athlete. So that's what got me to LSU, and one of the main professors there who worked in biological engineering did DNA, antisense like DNA particle work. And another professor there worked on nanoparticles. So kind of quickly in my undergraduate and like graduate degree, I started to discover nanoparticles and thought that they were really cool, all their cool properties, how they interact with the light. Um, so that led me down a path of studying that. And when then I did a stint at Wash U in St. Louis, where the main professor I was working with there did study gold nano cages for various different applications. So I worked a little bit on that, but actually only for a short time. Um, yeah, I'd say it was sort of happenstance. And like I got led down that road of studying cellular biology in college, and I just thought it was so fascinating.
2: So you had mentioned that you were kind of torn between maybe being a writer or being a scientist, so it seems like you initially kind of pursued more of this scientific route, so at what point did you shift towards more science communication.
4: Yeah. So I remember, you know, when I was little, probably not that little, I mean, probably middle school. If you had asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, I would have said like a writer. I wanted to be like to write books. (laughs) Um, I loved writing. I loved writing poetry. But when I went to college, especially being a college athlete and studying engineering, that was a pretty heavy load. And so I did try to basically avoid anything and everything liberal arts, like to try to maximize my time in college. So I never took a single writing class or anything outside of science that I didn't have to. So it wasn't until I was getting a PhD that I ended up stopping at WashU in biological engineering that I started to, I know a lot of grad students get to a point in they might get to a point in their grad studies where they feel like they're looking at such a small problem and such like the same thing over and over that it started to get a bit monotonous and I started to miss this bigger picture. So at that time, like one of the first things I could think about to spend my time looking at bigger picture things was to start blogging, to start just writing. First I was going to do a newsletter, but quickly got into blogging. And I would say like that was the seed for thinking about science communication for me. And it just like blossomed from there. Um, ended up pushing me towards a a PhD and a career in science communication.
2: Yeah, I think when people think about PhD students in the sciences, I think they think we're maybe just in the lab the whole time, which is really not the case. I think we have to get all of these additional professional skills, like being good writers and being able to communicate well in a maybe not in person anymore, but in public speeches and everything. So it seems between getting those skills through graduate work and then also wanting to pursue things outside of the lab bench, I think through graduate school is when I notice a lot of people discover their interest in science communication, not just being at the bench.
4: Yeah, I think for me it was, you know, at that time there wasn't a lot of that in the grad program already, but I think a lot of grad students you're right, they're kind of discovering, well, number one, I need to be a good writer because I'm having to write these grants. Um, I'm having to try to get money, and I can't do that without science communication. You're having to write papers. You're realizing that, you know, you might not be the, as good of a writer as you hoped you would be. And then for me, I also just, it was an outlet, a creative outlet, at a time when I was struggling a little bit in the lab with um, maybe burnout or, you know, other things that made me want to do something different.
2: So is your science blogging more for you than you hoped it would be for other people? Because it sounds like for you, it was your your personal outlet. At what point did you start shifting away from, I need to get this off my chest and maybe put it out there, and then to, I want to communicate specific science ideas?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that was through blogging, like through practicing science communication. Just having this goal, I was going to blog every single week. And it went from, you know, how often can you blog about your own research? So you start expanding your horizons and start, I started to blog about, you know, other people's research. And then, you know, and then about kind of news and science. And then I started blogging mostly about science communication itself, like what I was learning about how to be a better communicator. So, yeah, you often, when you're forced to write on a regular basis or when you push yourself to, I think, you know, you find a wider variety of things that you could write about and think about.
1: What is your goal when you go into writing? So is it to inspire a young scientist, or is it to clarify? What What do you bring into the writing process? And who do you hope to reach?
4: Yeah, that's an awesome question because it, it depends so much on what I'm writing. So. You know, when I was blogging, for example, I mean, a lot of it was just to practice myself writing in a very, um, like, conversational way and trying to break things down. But you learn a lot through various different kinds of writings that you need to start with, you know, what your goals are and what your target audience is for this particular piece. So... Let's say now when we're, we'll be talking about these lifeology courses, but now when I'm writing these, I'm trying to think and start more from the perspective of like, who's going to be reading this, like looking at this. So who's the target audience and what might they want to know? So I recently wrote a little lifeology course about coronavirus, you know, at the start of the pandemic and started with, you know, what are the common questions people are Googling, wondering about coronavirus. So instead of starting from a scientific perspective of like okay let's talk about the background what is a virus what is you know genetic material kind of going over all the background instead I started thinking about what does the audience want to know what what are they concerned about and starting there to try to address those questions so sometimes in your writing you know you might try to move from explaining science to more like engaging and entertaining people or even you know answering their questions about you know safety or their own personal concerns about science.
2: I guess just a final, before we, we shift into more specific lifeology questions, do you think that social media is the most effective way to communicate science? Or I guess it depends on what you put limits on the term social media and what that means. Because I know a lot of people get their science information either from the news or from podcasts. And then you talked about blogs so do you have a favorite way you like to either learn science or your favorite way to communicate science?
4: Yeah. Well well there's a lot of questions in there. (laughs) Some of them are kind of difficult. Yeah. Well I'll start with personal. So so my favorite way of communicating science is is writing. I've always loved writing and even trying to push myself to do more visual communication or, you know, communicate through video, all those things kinda kinda secondary for me to writing. I just love the written word. And I also probably and I prefer to learn through reading myself. Um, but everybody's different, right? And actually, you know, there's evidence that we learn best when we learn like multimodal lo- learning, like learning through uh, multiple senses. So taking in something visual as well as reading or also, you know, interacting with it. So, you know, there probably isn't one best way to learn anything. Like, it's probably best to learn things in different modes to really, like, engage with it and even, like, reinforce your learning. And so in terms of like whether social media, I mean, I love, I love social media. I love it as a community aspect and also, you know, interacting with not only readers or audiences, but also other science communicators. But in terms of its effectiveness, that, you know, that's a huge question. And, and I could certainly say like not blanket statement. There's certainly, social media is certainly not the best way to communicate science all the time. Um, and it can be highly effective or highly not effective. It really depends on the audience. you know, if you're if you're wanting to reach someone or to particular audience that doesn't really have good access to the internet or isn't necessarily on a particular social media outlet, that could be actually a terrible way to try to reach them. And so, you know, it, it really has to start with our goals, with who our audience is and what we're trying to achieve. I think social media is great because we think about it just from the nature of it. It helps like-minded people connect, which is great for building community and engaging people who are already interested in what you might be writing about or tweeting about or, you know, Instagramming about, Um, but it makes it very hard to reach people who are unlike you. So that's the danger of using social media. I think that one of the biggest dangers as science communicators is that we assume just putting something out on social media is reaching the quote-unquote broader public when it's really not. It, it, social media is its really helping us reach people who are going to be like us. And You have to try really, really hard using social media to reach people who aren't like you, if that makes sense, um, just by the, the social like nature of it.
2: Yeah, those are all incredibly valuable points. Um, so then can you talk about what your inspiration was Developing lifeology.
4: Yeah, so um, lifeology really it came about through a collaboration between myself and our VP of design here at Lifeomek, Dorian Alguera, and he, he's a designer. He doesn't have a scientific background, but we're both at the same company where we're always pushed to learn about science and health and the, the science of health, and we kind of came together. Lyphomic, we produce blog posts and different kinds of educational content for people on health topics, but it's often it often gets into nitty gritty details. And Dorian had this idea of like, you know, what would it look like to engage people who are scared or intimidated, or you know, for various reasons don't have high literacy and period or high literacy in science or health. Um, what would it like look like to engage them in a very accessible and like not scary way? So he had this idea of these, you know, kind of flashcard format with visuals. And as soon as I saw that, you know, I thought this is an awesome platform for science communication, but also to bring scientists and artists together. So it kind of grew into an idea for a platform that, as a delivery mechanism, is a simple kind of flashcard format that combines art. And words are kind of like a kid's storybook that you can flip through, but that our platform would inherently also bring together scientists and artists and in collaboration. which I think is the most important part of how we design lifeology courses is that bringing together scientists and artists who might not have any background in science and having them together trying to communicate science inherently I think makes the science communication better because, you know, the artist is considering, how do we make this entertaining? How do we tell a story? They're looking at it from not a scientific lens and I just think that helps give new perspective um, and new like accessibility to the communication of it. So... It kind of started with pushing myself. I've always written kind of, uh, I'd say, for more technical audiences. And this was really one of the first times I was really pushing myself to, like, what does it look like to truly communicate for broad audiences and for low-literacy audiences? A lot of people say they're trying to do that, but, you know, whether they're actually doing it, like, it's very hard to do, and you really have to push yourself to really not make any assumptions about the audience's previous knowledge, or even interest in science itself.
1: Is there a toolkit that you have as a science writer to communicate to those audiences? How do you use language differently?
4: Yeah, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about health literacy before I started Lifeology. I really have had to learn a lot about health literacy in particular. But a lot of it, not to say it's common sense, but it sort of is it's it's basically just really thinking about and being really empathetic about who your audience is and trying to engage with them like learning from them um and so yes I mean one of the first things we learn about in science communication is taking out the jargon right because like if we if we use words that people can't understand like that's a gimme like you know That's the easiest thing we can do is take out jargon so that they can at least understand the words we're using. Um, But that's probably like, that's like the tip of the iceberg basically in terms of like health literacy and making science communication accessible. Like yes, take out the jargon, but then there's so much beyond that. Like for example, are you using words that um, this particular audience can, can relate to? Like terms, analogies, are any of these things controversial or like even offensive for this particular audience? Like, are these analogies or metaphors we're using or simple language, do they relate to this audience's life and the way that their community and culture? You know, so there's so much beyond. We can might be using a simple word, but it might be ambiguous or not have particular meaning for a particular audience. And then, you know, we talk about, like, can that audience even read to begin with? Like, non-English speakers to where you need to translate um, do they have trouble reading or are they in a particular situation like they're very stressed about a new health diagnosis that they just got to where they're very emotional and it's it might be even hard for them to get through text because maybe they're upset and like it literally pains them to try to read something that's negative about their health, for example. And so that's where bringing in visuals and kind of self-paced visuals so that they can slowly go through something at their own pace based on their emotional state. You know, there's basically like, I'm just trying to paint a picture of how much complexity there is to making something accessible and to making it health literate, that goes beyond just simple language. And so these are just some of the things that I'm learning as we go create lifeology courses is how to really think about the audiences and be empathetic about what they're going through so that we can speak to them in ways that is going to help them.
1: I guess I have a a question about audience. So for lifeology, um, when we think about outreach, a lot of outreach is kind of self-selective. And you were touching on this before, like you find a circle of like-minded people on the internet, people who read the CSN blog are typically like science curious to begin with. So how does Lifeology approach getting a general person interested in in your content?
4: Yeah, um, I think from like the content perspective, so that, I mean, there's kind of two problems there, like just getting someone to the content is a problem in and of itself so like how do you actually reach the people who aren't already searching for this stuff online so that might be you know some examples where what y'all have done is like going to a festival or something and you know talking to people yes they're there at the festival so they may still be interested in science if it's a particularly focused on that but but you might still reach people who wouldn't otherwise be searching online for science and health information, or maybe, you know, you have a a patient population if you're in a healthcare setting where you can send this information out to where they wouldn't already be looking for it, but because they're a part of a research study or because they're, you know, being treated for a particular health condition that you could send them information that they wouldn't already be searching for. And so on that side with lifeology courses, we're trying to make it very easy. For it to be just like a link that that you could send out to people. They they could go through these courses and they don't have to download anything or download an app or, you know, do something that requires a lot on their part in order to start consuming the content. But then when they actually get there, then our job is, you know, just like any blog post or article, your your job is to get them past the first paragraph or the first sentence and to keep going. And so if that, you know, first, in our case, a flashcard with text on it or in a blog post or article example, your first paragraph, if that has jargon or it's not immediately applicable or interesting to them, if it doesn't highlight why this matters to the reader, then they might drop off and not continue. And so we work really hard, like there's different things we can do, like tell a story, um, start with a question, start with addressing some concerns that this audience might already have or some questions that they have and then leading them through the answers in like of a narrative way. Those kind of things can help like pull people through the content instead of relying on their own motivation to get through a very jargony, you know, or a scientific first paragraph, for example. So You really have to pull people all the way along from getting them to the content and then getting them through the content. You kind of just can't assume at any point that they're just going to be there from their own motivation. Yeah, so I mean, this is difficult stuff to achieve, but it takes like just thinking about all these different steps and what are the different things you can do to pull people through content. And I think, you know, visuals help, stories help, simple language helps, answering people's questions, like getting them engaged, even interactive elements. All those things are going to help someone to engage deeper and keep going through the content.
2: Yeah, I think this really speaks to the need for diverse creators so that you can have as many minds as possible thinking how to make engaging stories and then also being good listeners of what gets people excited because you can't just make content for people that you you know nothing about so yet your your points about being a really empathetic writer and creator I think is what helps these lifeology courses really resonate and be important and powerful yeah
4: I mean you just said to probably the two most important things in science communication that people always forget is that like collaboration with diverse creators and listening. So many science communicators forget that like, listening is probably your most powerful technique or you know skill in science communication.
2: So when we first learned about biology I think we were pretty excited thinking that we might be able to develop a course and have art that address the impact of nanomaterials in the environment. And you also seem particularly interested, um, probably because of your background in nanoscience, um, to help us consider how we could make an effective course about uh, nanomaterials and nanotechnology. Uh, Do you think there is something particularly challenging about communicating science that's on the nanoscale, like nanotechnology?
4: Yeah, I love... This was a really exciting project working with y'all. I was super excited to, like, the challenge of creating a lifology course or a series of them to, to communicate about nanomaterials and things on a nanoscale. I think I was really excited about this because there has been a lot of effort, you know, from NSF and from different agencies and science communicators to communicate about nanoparticles and stuff at the nanoscale. And I remember doing a lot of that in my graduate work too. And I think that we've come up with like some good ways to do this, but I still feel like there's a gap and I don't exactly know why. I feel like in the nanoparticle world, like we all use these same analogies of like, the nanoparticles and the size of the human hair and you know, you know, different things that we talk about when we talk about nanoparticles to so try to communicate to people this sense of scale. But I still feel like it's lost on most people. And so I was excited to work with y'all just to come up with like different ways to communicate about this that I wasn't already seeing out there in the world. I feel like there's sort of a narrow set of analogies and ways that we communicate about nanoparticles and nanoscale things. That it's like, you know, pushing ourselves, like, how can we tell a slightly different story about this? Yeah, I thought it was exciting.
2: Yeah, I think to that end, even just having pictures related to nanomaterials that aren't just kind of micrographs was something really neat about being able to make a lifeology course about nanomaterials. Because, yeah, the scale is really really challenging and being able to work with an artist like Elfie and give it personality and even color is something that would hopefully resonate with more people compared to just black and white images.
4: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I feel like, you know, even in textbooks, you know, how I learned about nanoparticle things, you do see a lot of the same images where it's like as a scientist, yeah, you learn about like what does you see a lot of microscope images of nanomaterials and I think you know, we learn to read like scale bars and that kind of thing as scientists to where we have an understanding of what scale that is. But to most people, that's going to mean basically nothing. And so I think, yeah, I haven't seen a ton of visuals that communicate the nanoscale very well to like an audience that doesn't have any background in that. So I do think that creating art for the sake of communicating scale is is a really nice challenge.
1: Yeah, I think it's so interesting, because As scientists, at some point, we accept that it's just really, really small. And that's just something that we don't really question. And we just like hold it as true. So it's kind of interesting to think back for when we were learning about nanotechnology or what something really, really small is, what the thought process to accept it was. When you write courses, do you and try to occupy that mental space of like, I'm just learning about this for the first time.
4: Yeah, I think that is always important to like have your audience in mind. And I know lately when I'm trying to write lifeology courses, it sort of is like trying to and it's so hard. That's why science communication is hard because it's hard to imagine to put yourself in the mindset before you knew things. It's called like the curse of knowledge. But when I'm writing a lifeology course, you know, I try to just to just question all of my assumptions. Like, so I might start and be like, you know, talking about DNA and I might just question myself, like as I'm writing this, like, wait, does, is this person actually gonna know what DNA is? But not only that, I try to question like, does this person even care? Like, do I really need to explain, well, this is exactly how big it is or does this for this particular audience and for my communication goal, like do they really need to know that in the first place? Like I think as science communicators we so often assume like, okay, we wanna tell you about this cool thing with nanoparticles, but first like we need to like go back and take you through introductory textbook material of like chemistry, biology, this is DNA, this is and I feel like we you know, we get so caught up of getting in like a teaching mindset for a general audience. And we forget that like all that introductory stuff we might just lose them and they don't really care about it. So I try to question for myself, like, what is this audience actually What do they really want to know and am I getting to their questions fast enough? Do I really need all this background material or can I just talk about, you know, DNA as like squiggly material inside of such and such? Do I really need to define what it is and to define nucleotides or is that just basically details that aren't required for this, this communication goal?
2: I think we realized a lot of that too while we were building the course for the first time. We had an incredible amount of facts that we had originally written out that we wanted to include. And over time, once we really crystallized our message, we needed to go back and make sure every fact we delivered had function for actually understanding and valuing our final message. And that, yeah, all of those facts shouldn't really be presented as a laundry list of don't forget this and also this, but really taking the audience along to, I guess, presenting a case for why what you're saying matters
4: yeah I think it's such so hard as scientists because we just get in this mindset that all those details are important because you know in what we do in our careers, yes, we do need to know all those nitty gritty details. But I think we also forget, like, that's the power, that's the wonderful thing about the internet and, like, you know, when we write these psychology courses if anyone, is if we just get people interested and get them through, like, we can say, like, hey, do, do you want to learn more about, like, exactly what DNA is or exactly what this compound is? Like, here's a link and learn more. So, if we get them interested, it's, like, making that first initial like spark in the person, they can dive deeper and learn all these details for themselves. Like, they can explore that, which is awesome. I feel, I feel like we can't forget that. You don't have to write everything we do. It doesn't have to be a textbook. You know, like the, this person has plenty of other opportunities to dive deeper if they want to. Yeah,
2: and we don't need to rewrite everything. There's so much great communication out there that we can link to and give resources to as much as possible.
1: Jaya, I think you're up for the final question. Sure. So what's one thing that you wish that science communicators or grad students knew?
4: Oh,
2: or multiple things. If you've got a list, <laughs> the big
1: takeaways, <laughs>
4: I mean, this is a little bit on a soapbox, just like, you know, it's a little bit of my personal agenda at the moment of teaching people this. So I think it's the first thing that I think about but I think it's important is for any science communicator or grad student out there right now who wants to get into science communication to just remember that you don't have to do it all on your own. Like you don't have to be like this one stop shop for science communication that I encourage everyone to just to learn from others. Like go out there and form some kind of partnership or collaborate with an artist or with a storyteller with a children's book author who knows nothing about science communication, and you, you'll learn so many things from them, and, and end up producing great science communication just by you know collaborating with them and asking them what they think about your science and your messages. I think that's so powerful, and I've learned myself so much from like Dorian, the, our designer, who knows nothing about science and had no background in science communication except that he just naturally kind of practices a ton of the. Best practices in science communication, just because of his background in design. So yeah, that's what I would say. It's like learn from other fields, like learn about practices in design and storytelling and art. It doesn't have to be science communication specific for you to learn how to communicate better.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paige. It's been an absolute pleasure to work on our lifeology course and with you and the group. So. Thank you so much, and, and we're excited for
0: our next one. So that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to Dr. Paige Giroux for talking with us for this episode, and to Stephanie Mitchell and Jaya Borgata for doing this interview. Our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. You'll hear more from Stephanie in our second Lifeology interview, in which she and Paige Kinsley talk with artist Elfie Chang about her beautiful work on our Lifeology course. That episode should be coming out in just a week or two. This podcast is produced by the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. Our usual disclaimer is that the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can listen to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and the National Science Foundation's Science Zone Radio, or listen to all the episodes and see show notes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with over 300 posts, mostly written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Sustainable Nano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Nano podcast, and here's hoping for a happy and healthy 2021 for everyone.